Previously on the British Broadcasting Century, a hundred years ago, this. 14th November 1922. The British Broadcasting Company came into being. 2LO at Marconi House, London. 2LO Marconi House, London, calling. 5IT at the General Electric Company's works, Whitton, Birmingham. Hello, this is 5IT. And 2ZY at the Trafford Park, Manchester, the next day. I'm Paul Carenza and this is 100 Years in 100 Minutes, celebrating a centenary of British broadcasting. 1922. The Children's Corner. I thought up the idea of a blue cat with yellow spots. I thought that ought to interest them. Here I am again with my old string bag. Surely no man has ever proclaimed the gospel from such an extraordinary pulpit as I am now occupying. There's another broadcast vicar for New Year's Eve. To be the last in the year 1922 to speak to you is a responsibility before which the most confident might quake. A hundred years in a hundred minutes. To make it more palatable, we'd be podcasting in three parts. This is part one, 1922 to 1954. Now, 1923. The first outside broadcast from Covent Garden. And it was a great thrill to hear the music coming from Covent Garden for the first time to hear it at a distance. Early in 1923, I carried out first outside broadcast of a dance band from the Savoy Hotel Ballroom. Well, that is over, and I hope you heard it clearly and enjoyed it as much as we did in the studio. Please, I implore you, do not interfere with the pleasure of others. The Glasgow station launched. I mean, we were mysteries to all the people beyond the studios. Kathleen Garskan. They couldn't imagine voices coming through the air, and so they were standing down at the front door waiting to see us coming out. We wore party dresses so that people wouldn't be disappointed when they saw us coming out into the street. The BBC <laughs> moved into Savoy Hill, and the chairman, Lord Gainford, gave this speech. We are not going to stop broadcasting. Broadcasting has come to stay. Women's Hour, not Women's Hour, starts on the 2nd of May, 1923, and Men's Hour starts on the 1st of May, 1923. These are the Mm. days that the new studios are launched. Dr Kate Murphy and Dr Andrea Smith. The first play, 12th night in May, 23. It was a year of many firsts, including... The first of a series of dramatic criticisms called News and Views of the Theatre by Mr Archibald Haddon, the BBC dramatic critic. Hello, playgoers. And the first gardening programme. I I want to tell you about my little pond. It's been such a business. As the Radio Times has now made its appearance, this will be the last of my Saturday night talks on coming events from 2LO. Justin Webb. My grandfather, Leonard Crocombe, was the first editor of the Radio Times. A gentleman from Sheffield walked into my office and he said, Have you listened to Wireless in Sheffield? It's like an insurrection in hell. (laughs) And from that sprang the relay station. We started broadcasting Big Ben. But of course, they weren't a very accurate time signal in those days. And in order to uh, satisfy the more scientifically minded, uh, Mr. Hope Jones, well-known horologist at that time, suggested that we should uh, radiate the pips from the Greenwich clock. 1924. The year a nightingale and a cello were united. Programmes include today's chess move and the first running commentary on the Lord Mayor's show, the first OB of a BBC symphony concert, the start of special transmissions for schools, the first broadcast church service from St Martin in the Fields by Reverend Dick Shepherd. On the second Sunday in each month, to be allowed to say prayers, to sing hymns and to talk religion in the presence of any of you who are willing to listen. The first play written specifically for the radio, Richard Hughes' play Danger. Here we are, my dear, buried alive. 
Oh, Jack. Alas, they will never find us. Good evening, everyone. We were brought A.J. Allen. Uh, this is A.J. Allen. A mystery broadcaster with his mysterious stories. I remember one night in 1923, I'd been to Savoy Hill, sitting in what they called the drawing room, having a, dra- um, uh, having a yarn uh, with the announcer. For the complete list of who's speaking, see the show notes for details. We had the first Gaelic broadcast and the first sports reporter, Edgar Wallace, on the Derby. The first broadcast from the King, George V. Here today with the Queen for the purpose of opening the British Empire Alan Stafford. Tommy Hanley was enormous, really. He was there in pretty early days. Uh, hello, folks. 1924. This is Tommy Hanley calling. 1925 was in, in the first radio review, Radio Radiance. Just you wait a minute, John Henry. John Henry was a Yorkshire comedian. This was the start of domestic comedy on the radio. He talked about family and his wife, Blossom. I won't go to sleep. He is the, the hen-pecked husband. She is the, the bossy wife. I don't know how you can think of going to sleep with that on your conscience. Didn't I dream last night that you were kissing another woman? But I didn't kiss another woman. No, but I dreamed you did, and I know what dreams mean. Programmes include the first broadcast crossword puzzle, first weekly list of market prices for farmers, there are seaside concert parties and cathedrals. In 1925, we built a, a new transmitter on the top of Selfridge's building in Oxford Street. The transmitter itself was in a little hut right on the top of the flat roof of Selfridges. It's a commercial company, so there are sponsored concerts, including programmes sponsored by the Daily Mail and the Evening Standard. I applied for permission to erect a long wave station. Devontry calling. Each receiver will have to have a switch. The first high-power station in the world. Daventry, really big taking up a couple of fields and the valves were off heat and in Daventry they used a water cooling system the problem was sheep sheep were falling into the warm oh, water no. they had a solution do you know what they did they built ramps so the BBC is the developer of the sheep ramp as time goes on in this special 100 years and 100 minutes you'll find fewer clips and more interviews with experts podcast listeners and those who are there we're erring on the right side of rights you see we hope at least so very early broadcasts are largely public domain enjoy these until later years gives way to insights not extracts 1926 included perhaps the most important nine days in the bbc's history a general strike will begin tomorrow with the printed press grinding to a halt the bbc became almost the sole source of news here is the last news bulletin for today for the first time then it didn't just read the news it gathered it as well the present strike is of a nature quite unlike the many others which have preceded it the government well churchill tried to commandeer the bbc airwaves wreath resisted though petitioning the Prime Minister. I was making a passionate appeal. The government should leave the BBC alone. And he kept the BBC independent, just about, although Reith would be the ultimate arbiter of what was on the air. And trust to me, that's what it came to, I suppose. He kept the Labour Party and the TUC off the air. We were broadcasting news all day long, and I think I passed every single one. And when the general strike came to an end, Reith himself announced it on air. By reading Jerusalem. And apparently in the original broadcast, the orchestra came in and turned it into a triumphant song at its conclusion. Somehow after this general strike, the BBC won both public trust and a government-approved sense of independence. The Crawford inquiry favoured an end to the commercial company years, but not before this. Here is Harry Graham, who's going to tell you something about his aunts. Of all my aunts, and I have eight, this is one of our weekly broadcasts to our listeners in Europe. 
Bonsoir, mesdames et messieurs. Good night. Buenas tardes, señoras y señores. Good afternoon, mina dama. Rockera. There are games on the air, including charades and musical consequences. And this. Now we're taking you over to St. Hilary, Cornwall, for the first broadcast of the Nativity play. Mr. Filson Young is in the church and will introduce the players. The play moves in a pageant of scenes round the church. As the play begins, you will hear the voice of the bells. On New Year's Eve, then, all of the staff of the British Broadcasting Company were effectively sacked and rehired the next day as part of the suspiciously familiar British Broadcasting Corporation, which began on January the 1st, and 1927 was declared a year of sport on the air. It was 1927 when we broadcast the boat race from a launch for the first time. There were relays from Twickenham. Well, the first half has been about as, about as exciting as anyone could wish for. Oh, I can't go that. They're off again. They're changing over. It's Wales has kicked this time. And relays from Wimbledon. Austin is serving from the committee box, serves down the centre line. Koshi is taken unaware, standing too far to the right. But with one of his inimitable sidestepping movements, he reaches the ball, returns it cleverly to Austin's backhand. Little Miss Bouncer alarms an announcer down at the BBC. She doesn't know his name, but how she rejoices when she hears that voice of voices. The first disc jockey, Christopher Stone. These days, with the gramophone and the wireless always on tap, music seems to be the background of nearly every child's life. The BBC rescued the proms, and here is Sir Henry Wood. My dear friends of the promenade concerts, I cannot tell you how glad I am to be with you tonight. The last night of a remarkable season. For a complete list of everybody who's talking, see our show notes for the full list. Hilda Matheson, having been political secretary to Nancy Astor, was well connected with politicians. She was well connected with the Bloomsbury set, so she could tap into those networks. 1928. When I first told my friends that I was going to Persia, to most of them, Persia was little more than a vague romantic name. Here is the weather report. The weather will be slightly sloppy for the next few months. Summer this year will occur on Thursday, July the 15th. The uh, news bulletin. Copyright, right ho, uh, straight from the horse's mouth. In the church cantatas of Bach, there exists a superb treasure of music which is practically unknown to the English public. It is our intention, Sunday by Sunday, to present these cantatas. This is a costly service, and the BBC is the only organisation... We're now taking you over to the children's hour. Hello, kiddies. Hello, kiddies. Many happies, happy bars, and everything you wish yourselves. One birthday message to little Tommy Atkins. Tommy, if you go and look under your mother's pillow, I think and hope you will find her teeth. David Handy. September 1928. Lance Sieverking unveils Kaleidoscope. <laughs> 70 minutes long, live, uses just about every studio in Savoy Hill. Mm. An, an orchestra in one, a band in another, actors in another. It allowed for the creation of layered complicated montage-style radio. And then Mabel Constandurus, very versatile because she did more or less a whole family. She created the Buggins family. Mother, there were the, the children. The landlord's doing her place up and she's afraid the paint will turn her. Very grumpy old grandma. If it turned her sensible instead of muddle-headed, she ought to be grateful. 1929. Well, one of the landmarks of that year, which ULO stayed on the air all night, in order to broadcast the, the election results. Sir John Reith, in evening dress, sat in Studio 3 all night uh, and read the, read the results. Eric Dunstan, supposed to have been the duty announcer, got very angry because uh, he wasn't allowed to do the job. And I can remember a very angry scene taking place in the cubicle of the Variety Studio because Sir John was going to read the, the, the results. 
and Dunstan walked out, never to darken the doors of Savoy Hill again. Hilda Matheson introduces the weekend Westminster. John Logie Bed begins testing TV. And for the kids, Toy Town. What's that lamb doing here? Please, Mr. Mayor, sir, I, I'm the pirate's mate. 1930. I got the most wonderful letter. Now, you'll never believe it. It's absolutely Im- unbelievable. It's a letter from a listener who is perfectly satisfied with the radio programme. Good. <laughs> really? Isn't that marvellous? I'd love his autograph. <laughs> <laughs> All for ten shillings a year. By now, about half of homes had licences. On April the 18th, there was no news, according to the census. The BBC Symphony Orchestra began under Sir Adrian Bolt, immortalised in this song. There's Bolt, Bax and Beecham, and at Queen's Hall at the prom, you can hear the cheers for Henry Wood as he waves his to and from. There's cantatas and sonatas and some ripe tomatoes too, for the man who doesn't pay his licence fee when it is due. This is the national programme. Here is Mr Harold Nicholson to give you his usual talk on people and things. I've received endless letters, uh, one of which advised me to model my elocution upon that of the BBC's critic of novels. The regional programme began giving us choice of two, but quashing local in the process. Ex-BBC archivist Simon Rooks. The BBC did not have any equipment to record a broadcast until 1931. First of all, I must apologise for my voice. Since my last talk, I've had the somewhat alarming experience of hearing my own voice on the blatnophone. That changed in 31 when a blatnophone was acquired. When I heard it on this curious instrument, I was frankly horrified. Val Gielgud there, head of drama, who went to early TV to make the first TV play. The very experimental Man with a Flower in his mouth is seated at one of the tables, silently observing the customer, who, at a neighbouring table, is sipping a mint frappe through a straw. Good evening, England. This is Gilly Potter speaking. Tonight, I am to tell a wandering world the truth about the BBC. The BBC is in London at a place called Savoy Ill, so named after that Duke of Savoy who was never really well. Hello, control room. This is uh, transmission studio number three. This is a large building, entirely surrounded by alleys. Well, that seems OK here. I'll see how Brooklyn's part now. Which enable the officials to escape censure and the vaudeville artists to escape arrest. By now, the BBC had filled Savoy Hill, no longer one studio, but 12. A plot had been found at Portland Place, and Broadcasting House would open in 1932, but not before the end of Savoy Hill. In 1932, it was the 10th anniversary of the BBC. There was a will to celebrate that. How do you represent the first 10 years of broadcasting if you don't have any recordings? <laughs> so a brilliant radio pioneer, Lance Siverking, wrote and produced The End of Savoy Hill. Mammoth production. They got people in and got them to reread bits of what they'd done in the 20s. Surely no man has ever proclaimed be the last in the year 1922. And it's only from that that we have some of those representations of 1920s broadcast. I want to tell you about my little palms. Now, producers are very naughty, and when they use those in archive programmes, they usually don't say that it's a rereading. Someone said, oh, what about the general strike? I've heard general strike bulletins. Strike is of a nature quite yes, you've heard general strike bulletins recorded in 1932. They were reconstructions. The premise was that they were going through studios, passed from one studio to another, from one speaker to another. So you had A.J. Allen, this is AJ Allen. passing on to film critiques Hello, and then on to Vita Sackville West. When I first told my friends that I was going to... Well, Oliver, I suppose this will be about the last time we'll be pulling down that old iron gate of yours for me. Later. Really they said goodbye to each studio no. on air. Here goes. They even broadcast the shutters being pulled down. Is there anybody in this room? Uh, 
who regrets leaving Savoy Hill and who had a melancholy feeling on the last day there, I suppose it should be me. Good night, sir. As I was the first one to go into it. Good night, sir. Good luck to all, sir. Actually, it was I who found the place. The Deeds of Broadcasting House. There's three conditions. There shall be no slaughtering of meat. There shall be no medical surgery takes place on the premises. And it shall not be operated as a brothel. I oh. think the BBC's OK on all three of them. <laughs> the first song from Broadcasting House was composed by Roger Eckersley, brother of the recently sacked for divorce National chief engineer Peter Eckersley. And it was played by... New BBC Dance Orchestra, directed by Henry Hall. Just the time for the Beeb was unstoppable. Reith launched the Empire Service, later to be known as the World Service. Broadcasting is a development with which the future must reckon and reckon seriously. He even convinced the king to use that service and broadcast a first royal Christmas message to the Empire. And international. Through one of the marvels of modern science, I am enabled this Christmas Day to speak to all my people throughout the empire. 1933. Recording trucks being able to cut a disc, you were able to be more mobile and, and make recordings in places other than the studio. Or in this case, the That's earliest the actuality right recording Herbert on record, a location boat, a night on London's river. And it's all to watch the pageant of London's River. And may we honour the late Ian Rawls, who digitised those recordings on his amazing London Sound Survey website. Elsewhere, there was the one show of its day in town tonight. Once again, we stop the mighty roar of London's traffic. And from the great crowds, we bring to you some of the interesting people who've come by land, sea and air to be in town tonight. And the first female announcer, Sheila Barrett, introduced controversially as Mrs Giles Barrett. And one of the first black presenters and performers, Elizabeth Welch, with her show... Here we are, a group of Iron Islanders gathered together to celebrate our Christmas. We were talking Irish when you came in on us, for that is the language of everyday life here. Quiddle, how often have I got to tell you that you must not crack nuts in front of the microphone? But a squirrel must eat, Brer Rabbit. Win the lad, look, win the lad, Wallet. Now, yes, win the lad. On the air, if you have a little time to spare. The famous Marconi Type A microphone and the fictitious Death at Broadcasting House hits the airwaves. Daily times at Big Ben chimes are radio time. In 1935, Alistair Cook has an American half hour and comedians Tommy Handley and Ronald Franco become Murgatroyd and Winterbottom. Oh, Winterbottom, you sing grandly and I've heard you sing as Tommy Handley. Ronald Franco, ain't you swell? I'm on next week as well. What was quite unique in that stomach was that they were two funny men. It wasn't a straight man. One would say a joke, the other would make a joke upon it. Uh, what did you make of Jamaica? Oh, it's dearer than Madeira. It's nicer than Nice, brighter than Brighton, more popular than Poplar, coarser than Corsica. And it carried on like that, breakneck speed. To think that that was being played in Blackpool and recorded in London. Yes, yeah, just shows that one half of the world doesn't know what the other half's doing. Uh, the ball's in play at the other end of the field, so I'm passing you on to my colleague. He can't see what's going on, so he's passing back to me again. Not terribly interested in that. Let's try another station, shall we? We're frightfully BBC. 1936 is another big year, as broadcasting works out how to announce the death of a king. The king's life is moving peacefully. 
towards its close. Now, all stations of the British Broadcasting Corporation will now close down until 10 p.m. It is with great sorrow that we make the following announcement. His Majesty the King passed peacefully away at a few minutes before 12. The broadcast of his funeral. Here outside Westminster Hall, the scene is one now of mournful solitude. A new king is crowned. Science has made it possible for me to make that written message more personal and to speak to you all over the radio. And then that king abdicates. The broadcast personally arranged by Reith. I said I will sit down on this chair if you will just stand beside me, sir. His Royal Highness Prince Edward. Following me into the chair, he happened to give an awful kick to the table leg. And that went into the papers that Sir John Reith so disapproved and now of the ex-king that he'd gone out and slammed the door of the studio. We all have a new king. But it's also the year of the world's first high-definition television service. Hello, Radio Olympia. This is direct television from the studios at Alexander Palace. Yes, television begins. At three o'clock this afternoon, the television service was opened by the Postmaster General using the Baird system. Now, in September 1936, uh, a new and very colourful personality joined the staff of news department, Richard Dimbleby, wrote to John Copeman, the news editor, suggesting that a team of reporters should be recruited, and, of course, he, of course, offered his services for this job. And his letter said, in the event of a big fire, uh, reporters could be sent out to cover the event. In fact, little did he think at that time that he would be the first one to cover London's most spectacular fire at Crystal Palace. 1937, the first TV OB, the first live TV football match, the coronation of George VI. And an announcer takes to the air, and the bottle. At the present moment, the whole fleet is lit up. When I say lit up, I mean lit up by fairy lamps. We've forgotten the whole Royal Review. We've forgotten the Royal Review. 1938. I'm sorry, I was telling the people to shut up talking. The first foreign language service, the BBC Arabic service. The first TV sci-fi, R-U-R. The first drag queen hosted variety show, Bing Ho. RuPaul eats your heart out. And, unrelated, John Reith quits. I was sufficiently young to feel I could do all sorts of other things and that I ought to remain fully stretched. I left the BBC because I thought... There was nothing more that I could do there. Rightful mistake. War came and television stopped in 1939. This country is at war with Germany. The start of the BBC monitoring service, the audience research department was introduced. Can I do you now, sir? And halfway through a Mickey Mouse cartoon, the TV service stops. The BBC programme departments have left London for their secret emergency studios and it'll take them several days to settle in down there somewhere in England. 1940. The forces program begins, becoming more popular than the home service. The little holiday steamers made an excursion to hell and came back glorious. General Charles de Gaulle uses the BBC to speak to occupied France. If the British Empire and its Commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say, this was their final power. Gardner had his recording van on the seafront during a dogfight in the Battle of Britain. And how they're being chased home. You know, like a, a football commentator in, in its tone. Oh boy, look at them going. This is the BBC Home and Forces program. A bomb hits Broadcasting House. And this is Bruce Belfridge reading it. But the newsreader barely pauses. bulletin will be by Lord Lloyd, the Colonial Secretary. 
The story of recent naval successes in the Mediterranean. My sister, Margaret Rose, and I feel so much for you. 1941. In these talks, I've had to say a good deal about prayer. Calling the West Indies ran for many years. Una Marson introduced a segment called Caribbean Voices. Now I'm going to ask Flying Officer Ulrich Cross to speak for West Indians in the services. 1942, Roy Plumley starts to ask for our desert island discs. And remember the nightingale and the cello from 1924? Well, by 42, the cello had long stopped, but the nightingale kept singing and the BBC kept broadcasting it. Only now it had found a new instrument to duet with, the nightingale and the bomber. And here's a memory from Charles Huff. It's something my dad told me about, and I've never heard or read anything about it since. And it's what my dad called the ghost voice. Someone who used to sit in a studio somewhere in Europe during the war. He'd hear on his headphones, maybe the BBC News, saying British troops made major advances against Rommel's forces in the Western Desert yesterday. And he'd reply saying, the British are running away, the British are running away. And you'd hear this as a ghost voice coming in. 1943, a certain jaunty tune heralds the World Service News, Lily Bolero. Reverend Bramwell Evans starts to broadcast nature programmes as a Romany. Can you hear that? Can you hear it? Look, that's a snuffling noise. It's a hedgehog. It isn't cold enough yet for him to hibernate, you know. But he is beginning to look round for a suitable place for his winter sleep. Here he comes. Dr Andrea Smith. Radio drama is operating in lash-up conditions after the bombing of Broadcasting House, but the public demand for entertainment remained high. The previous year, the BBC had presented Shakespeare's Henry V with Laurence Olivier in the lead, and in 1943 they returned to the play. The front cover of the Radio Times proclaimed, In 1415 the men wore armour, and in 1943 the armour is borne by vehicles, but the same spirit informs the steel. This time the star was Esmond Knight, a genuine war hero who lost his sight during the conflict. The Radio Times told readers, Very little, I imagine, would keep this fellow down. He does not, and rightly, believe in making sympathetic capital out of his sightlessness. To this day, as far as I know, he remains the only actor with a visual impairment to take the leading role in a Shakespeare play on radio. Of course, in wartime, technology advanced very quickly and recording trucks got smaller and eventually the war correspondents had portable disc cutter machines called the midget, which they could take out very close to the front line. I mean, they weighed 60 pounds. I mean, they were not tiny, but but they were more portable than anything else. And that was the recording machine that both uh, Richard Dimbleby and Winford Vaughan Thomas took up in, in bombers and recorded on bombing missions. They are going to jump carrying heavier loads than any army has ever done before. Standing on a rooftop, looking out over London. At the moment, everything is quiet. 1944. On D-Day Eve, the BBC broadcasts certain poetry, coded messages to France about what is to happen the next day. And then from broadcasters like John Snag and Guy Byam... War Report number one. The story of D-Day. With every arm of the liberating forces went a BBC correspondent. The shells are whistling overhead now. Just listen to them. This is invasion day, it's just before dawn. In 1945, Richard Dimbleby is among the first into a concentration camp after liberation. His report is so shocking, the BBC refuses to broadcast it until Dimbleby threatens to quit if they don't. This day at Belsen was the most horrible of my life. BBC monitoring at Caversham is the first place in Britain to hear of the death of Hitler. And a week later, the BBC declare it VE Day. This is Johnny Bealing. It wasn't really until 1945, when I was eight years old, that I sort of became much more aware of the BBC light programme. Gene Metcalf and Bill Crozier, two-way family favourites. 
1946, Dick Barton's special agent, housewife's choice for an assortment of popular and light music. The light programme is launched and the next year more channels. The return of television, picking up with the Mickey Mouse cartoon that it stopped broadcasting seven years previously. Also Letter from America and Women's Hour. And the addition of a third programme. How to listen, including how not to, how you ought to and how you won't. Early on, we used the two programmes as mixed general programmes. We would put on a programme of rock and roll, and at the end of that, we would put on a programme of Beethoven, in the hope that they would come to enjoy broader and broader fields. This was not really working. Now, we're trying a different approach to it. In 1947, the first televised proms, the first telerecording of an outside broadcast, the service at the Cenotaph and Gardner's Question Time. 1948. Football results and sports report, Eamon Andrews. Angus Mackay was the editor, announcer Tim Gudgeon. Eventually I worked on that as a studio manager. The Billy Cotton Band Show. Ted Ray with Razor Laugh. BBC Radio Norfolk's Paul Hayes. The first ever international football tournament to be shown on BBC television at the London Olympics of 1948. Jimmy Jewell became the BBC's first ever regular television football commentator. 1949, the BBC weather forecast returns. And what's that city? You, you don't think this will work in audio? Well, let's wave our magic wands. Izzy Wizzy, it's... 1950. La 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 la. Yes, it's The Archers and Lime Grove. And it's the first televised sitcom, Life with the Lions. My name is Charles Huff. Life with the Lions is quite interesting. Ben Lyon and his wife, B.B. Daniels Lyon, were both ex-silent movie stars in America. And they moved to Britain just at the start of the Second World War. And were very popular because... An awful lot of Americans went the other way at that time. She was a clever cookie, actually, because uh, she actually wrote most of the scripts. My favourite programme, though, in those days, was definitely Educating Archie. Educating Archie. Sitcom star Geoffrey Holland. The vent who was on radio. <laughs> Twelve-year-old Julie Andrews as the guest singer. That particular era is very close to my heart, you know, in radio comedy, because that's where it all started. 1951, a televised general election for the first time, and... The Goons! Memories of that from former Radio 1 boss Johnny Beerling. We were all huge fans of The Goon Show. We even had a Goon Show fan club in the school. And uh, it was quite something to hear the way Sellers and Harry Seacombe would take the mickey out of Wallace Greenslade, who was the announcer. 1952, Watch With Mother. Are you sitting comfortably? Then I'll begin. It is very simple, this lying in state of a dead king. And of incomparable beauty. For the new monarch on the throne, we prepare for the following year's coronation, the event that launched television to the world, remembered by Roger Bolton. We got, in Carlisle as a brought-up, we got a 12-inch telly for the 53 coronation and had all our family in the front room and we were the only ones who had it. It was black and white, but it was so small that you had to buy, or you did it, could buy as well, a magnifying glass that went in front of it. The problem about that was if you looked head-on, that was fine, but if you looked like from the side or underneath, where of course I sat as a seven bridge or boy, all the royal families had large noses. It's actually <laughs> like going one of those fun fairs where the mirrors exaggerate. Oh, yes, yes. But yes, that was the moment that television really came home. Ladies and gentlemen, we invite you to have a go. 1953 also had Panorama and the Quatermass experiment. BBC graphic design 
didn't start really until December 1953 when they appointed one graphic designer, a man called John Sewell, who was a, a department to himself, if you like. 1954 had daily news on television, the first InVision weather forecast, David Attenborough's first wildlife show, ZooQuest, and Hancock's Half Hour. Very nearly an armful. It was also the last year with no competition for the BBC. So join us for the next special, 1955 to 1988, the era of competition, part two of 100 years and a 100 minutes will follow soon. This has been the British Broadcasting Century. Presented and produced by me, Paul Carenza. Original music by Will Farmer. Archive material is public domain as far as we know. BBC content is used with kind permission. BBC copyright content reproduced courtesy of the British Broadcasting Corporation. All rights reserved. In parts two and three of this 100 years and 100 minutes, expect fewer archive clips as we tread the right path of rights. But we welcome more insights from podcast listeners, experts, and those who are there. If you like what we do, patreon.com slash Paul Carenza supports this podcast or share it if you like it on Facebook and Twitter, if that's still a thing. Stay informed, educated and entertained and join us for part two of the British Broadcasting Century's 100 Years in 100 Minutes.